Well, hey, good evening, everybody. It's great to see all of you. Um, I was talking to Todd just a little bit ago. It's a shame that we have to do anything inside right now. It is just beautiful outside. We, we need to be on a patio someplace instead of in here. But uh, thankful that we're able to gather here and thankful for everybody who's joining us online as well as we have a chance to continue our study of the book of Acts. Um, really appreciate everybody hanging in there. You know, studying a book like Acts, 28 chapters, um, it is literally like flying through, you know, water skiing across uh, a vast lake or um, a, a deep ocean. But uh, hopefully by moving at this speed, we're able to get a sense of all the, how all the parts connect to the whole. Um, and also that it might create a, a, just a, a desire in you to go back and, and dig a little deeper into this book. I, I know I've, I've got a, a friend who uh, pastors down in Austin, Texas, and I, I heard him say one time, you know, that oftentimes our, our messages that we preach, um, they're like somebody who walks in and says, I found this nugget of gold, you know, out at Lake Thunderbird. Well, if we heard that, we might decide to go reorient our afternoon to go out to Lake Thunderbird and see if we can find some more where that came from. Oftentimes when we preach, uh, it's, it's a similar opportunity or we gather for a Bible study. It's a similar thing where we, we hear this truth, um, but it probably is almost certainly just a nugget of what's actually there. And it's an invitation for us to go find more. And, and thankfully, what more is out there is right here inside of God's Word. And we, by God's grace, are able to pick it up and to read it and to study it together uh, and on our own. And so just encourage you to be reading along with us as we walk our way through this book and this study as we talk about contagious Christianity from the book of Acts. Now, a couple of announcements just as we get started. Uh, last uh, Wednesday night, you heard Pastor John Abernathy invite y'all to come back in two weeks as we'll be back in um, this space talking about church history. So if the book of Acts goes through, you know, from 33 to 53 AD, this study is going to pick up about 70 AD and run through the early 300s. AD. And so just a, a great time to, to look at that. And John's going to be walking us through that on Wednesday nights beginning April 14. And so that will also be streamed. Um, if you're joining online, know that this will be another opportunity that will be available through the same channels where you have found uh, this material in the past. Um, also, just want to make sure everybody's aware that this is Easter week. Um, so we have just a, a, so much to celebrate and to worship uh, around the resurrection of Jesus and his death on our behalf this week. And so uh, just at Wildwood, we'll have our Good Friday services this Friday at 6 and 7.30. Those services are identical. They'll both be right here in the room. The 6 o'clock service will be live streamed. And so if you are going to watch that online, you can do so that way. Or in either of the services, we'll have communion together. We'll read scripture together. We'll sing songs together. Um, we'll have a short message reflecting on Jesus' death for us. He died for our sins. And so we're going to look at that together on Friday night. And then on Easter Sunday morning, we actually have four worship services that day. We have a special 7.30 a.m. sunrise service, which will be in our back parking lot outdoors. It's a BYOC affair, meaning bring your own chair. Uh, so we will be out there uh, together at 7.30. The, the music will be the same as it is indoors. The message will be the same as it is indoors. We'll have communion also as a part of that service outdoors, just as we'll have indoors later that morning. 
um, but it's just an opportunity. We won't have any children's ministry running at 7.30, but uh, the whole family is invited to join us at that time if, if that fits your schedule and your opportunity. Uh, it also gives a chance to spread out if that's a concern for you. Then at 9, 10, 15, and 11.30, we'll have our normal three Sunday services right here in this room. Um, that will be the same content from outside but indoors and just a great chance for us to really gather and to, to worship as a church family and to have even more opportunities to invite and include those around us to come and to worship with us this Easter season. So uh, anyway, just want to make sure everybody is, is aware of these opportunities and know uh, that they're happening this weekend. So as we get ready to get started here in the book of Acts tonight, I want to pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you for the history that lies behind it. Thank you that Acts is not a story, it's not a fairy tale, but it's a historical account of what you have done. Um, you sent your son into the world to die for our sins. He rose from the dead and commissioned the church to take this message to the ends of the earth. And that account has been preserved for us so that we would know today as people who are members of your church, who live inside of the same mission that was given to those very first followers of Jesus, what it looks like for us to be the church in our day. Tonight, Father, may your spirit illuminate the scripture for us, that we would understand more of who you are, and that you would just transform even our affections tonight as we look at this, um, that we might long to obey you and to follow you and to not just attend the church, but to be the church um, that has been created through the death of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. We thank you so much and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in this study of the book of Acts, and as we have seen throughout this time, the story of Acts is a story of how the world was reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, again, this cross stands where? In the Roman Colosseum. Specifically where at the Roman Colosseum? In the emperor's gate. And it shows the transformation that took place inside of a venue that Christians were persecuted in, in by Caesars. Now there stands a cross, and it shows the triumph of the church over that early persecution. How did that happen? Well, it happened as the gospel was contagious. It went from person to person to person. And the story of how that happened in the very first days is told in the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 is a commission that Jesus gave the church. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And again, this is not so much as a command as it is a promise. It's actually what took place in the first generation of the followers of Jesus. As the gospel went from Jerusalem, was proclaimed around Judea and into Samaria, and then ultimately, to the best of their understanding, to the ends of the earth. And we've, we're seeing those waves and ripples of influence uh, throughout our study. Now, as we've walked this through, we have seen initially that Jesus is alive and well. We, we've seen that the church is growing and is going and taking the gospel everywhere they go. We, we have seen that churches are planted even amidst a lot of difficulty 
And tonight, we're going to be in part four of this series, as we see in chapters 18 through 21, discipleship and its importance, as well as a sense of destiny in the gospel returning to where it began in Jerusalem. And so we're going to see a little of that tonight as we gather together. Again, in review, the first week we saw that Jesus is alive and well. He's risen. He's not retired. He's the same Jesus, but we're the same humanity, and the same people that rejected him continue to reject his church. We're called to be his witnesses wherever we went, but even with intentionality, Jesus is pushing his followers to leave the holy huddle and move into places like Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and we saw that in week one. And as the gospel was going out, individual lives were transformed, even lives like the Apostle Paul. And then we saw in week two, the gospel is continuing to be proclaimed, and the church is being led through ministry with human leaders like Peter and Paul. And then this very important church meeting in Acts chapter 15, where they determined that Gentile followers of Jesus do not need to become Jewish in order to become a Christ follower. And then we saw last week the second missionary journey of Paul, where he went to places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth before ultimately coming back to his home base in Antioch. So this is where we've been so far in our study of Acts. And tonight we're going to take the next step by looking at the third missionary journey of Paul. And in this third journey, what we're going to see is this sense of discipleship and destiny. Now, I put this graphic up last time. This is taken from Talk Through the Bible, Wilkinson Boas, Talk Through the Bible, a very helpful uh, Bible study resource. Um, but in this, uh, it's helpful to maybe orient a little bit to this graphic. So what you see across the top here are chapters in the book of Acts. This chart focuses on what happens between Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 28 as the gospel is going to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, what you see underneath it are a number of different things that happen in those chapters. These three numbers here represent the first missionary journey of Paul that was primarily in Galatia, the second missionary journey of Paul that was in Macedonia, Achaia, and Greece, and then the third missionary journey of Paul, which takes place primarily in the region known as Asia, where the city of Ephesus is. Now, what you see in this line are the dates. So his first missionary journey happened in 48, really to the beginning of 49. The second missionary journey happened from 50 to 52, 53. And then the third missionary journey from 53 to 57. These two numbers over here represent the two Roman imprisonments that Paul had. So he was imprisoned in the city of Rome two different times. And as you can tell, one of those Roman imprisonments happens inside the book of Acts. One of those happens after the book of Acts is written. Also, what you'll notice on this chart is when Paul wrote a number of the letters that are included inside of our New Testament. These letters were written in real time. As Paul would visit a place, he would help start a church in that place, and then often after he visited that place and helped the church get going, he would write them a letter of encouragement. Those are the letters that are included inside of our Bible. 
So after visiting Galatia on his first missionary journey, Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. That's the first letter that he wrote. Why do we think, well, I'll come back to this in a second. After his second missionary journey, or during his second missionary journey, after visiting the city of Thessalonica, Paul writes them two letters while he is spending 18 months in the city of Corinth, something we looked at last week. Two of his letters were written here. And then, right as uh, this third missionary journey is, is going on, we see three additional letters written, two to the Corinthians and one to the Romans. Now, you might wonder, how do we know these letters were written when this graphic indicates that they were written? And the answer is obvious. It's because of the postmark, right? That's, that's how we know. We just look at the postmark. No, that, that, we, didn't, we don't have postmarks, right? So how do we understand when these letters were written? Were they just you know, thrown down and, and some scholar in some classroom said, ah, we'll just say that it was written then? It actually is more scientific than that. The reason why we think Galatians was written here is because, obviously, the letter was written after Paul went to the Galatians. Well, when did he go to the Galatians? Well, he went to the Galatians on this first trip. But we're pretty certain that he wrote the letter before the Jerusalem Council because he's talking about issues that are happening around the Jerusalem Council, the same kinds of issues, but he never mentions the Jerusalem Council which is what happened in 49. Um, and so that omission lets us know that the letter to the Galatians was probably written in a fairly tight window between the end of the first missionary journey and the Jerusalem Council. What about the Thessalonian letters? Well, he writes them this letter. He talks about, we've spent some time together. We, we had this ministry. He obviously didn't write these letters before he had been there. He hadn't been there until his second missionary journey. And so we understand these letters to be written in close proximity to his visit to Thessalonica during his second journey. The letters to the Corinthians, why do we anticipate that they were written in this third missionary journey time frame? Well, the reason why is because of the content of those letters. Multiple times in the letter to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and I'll, I'll highlight one of those verses before we're done tonight, Paul actually asks them to take up an offering. He says, take up an offering because when I come, I'm going to get that offering from you and I'm going to take it back to Jerusalem and give it to the Christians who live in that city who are impoverished because of the persecution, because of other challenges that were happening in that area. And so, and we're going to see the third missionary journey ends in Jerusalem where Paul shows up with that offering. So these letters were written before that offering was collected. So we anticipate that they were written as he was progressing towards the city of Corinth, saying, I'm going to be there soon, take up an offering, and when I arrive, I'll take it back to Jerusalem. So there's, there's some thought behind this. And, and why do we think the letter to the Romans was written in this era? Well, the reason why we think the letter to the Romans was written in this era um, is because Paul says in that letter, I really want to come to Rome, but I've never been able to make it there. Paul's going to be in Rome very soon. As he's arrested and taken there, something we'll see next week. So the letter to the Romans obviously was written before Paul gets there, and that's why we date it about 57 A.D. at some point during that third missionary journey of Paul. I say all of that. That may be like snooze fest for some of you, um, but hopefully it helps it come alive. These weren't just 
some philosopher going into a dark room and just writing down words or thoughts. It was a pastor and a missionary writing the churches he had helped start and plant, helping shepherd and pastor them through difficult moments. Later on, he's also going to write letters to some of his friends that were continuing to coach church planters in different areas to help keep them focused. But we see the unfolding of these things. Again, why is Ephesians thought to be written after the third missionary journey of Paul? Because Paul hadn't spent any time in Ephesus yet. Paul will spend a lot of time in Ephesus, something we'll see tonight. So hopefully this graphic helps kind of make sense of um, some of what we're going to see this evening. But tonight we're going to look at this third missionary journey of Paul as we look at his time in a number of places, including an extended stay in the city of Ephesus. Well, what do we see inside these verses? The first big category that I want us to see is this. Paul leaves again. And this is something we pull from just one little verse, uh, 18.23, where it says, After spending some time there back in Antioch, he departed and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul completed his second missionary journey, but he didn't stay back in Antioch. He didn't go, hey, I have put in my time. I'm now going to retire and let the young missionaries take over. No, Paul's like, as long as I'm drawing breath, I'm going to continue to pour out my cup into anyone who has need. And so Paul, after a quick stop back in Antioch, he goes back out. Now, where does he go when he, when he makes this trip? Well, it says he went to Galatia and Phrygia. Now, where is that? Again, just to remind us, Antioch of Syria is right here. This was Paul's home base. But when he left Antioch of Syria, he goes through the region of Galatia. And as he's going through that area, he is revisiting a number of these towns and communities where he had helped the church get started on his first missionary journey. Then he may have interacted with some people during the early days of the second missionary journey. And here he is visiting them Again, when we've been studying the book of Galatians on Sunday morning, and you're like, wow, Paul is really passionate about those Galatians. It's because he just saw them a lot. Compared to a lot of his other locations, Paul goes through the Galatian region three different times during his missionary journeys. It's the only spot, he w- the only region he would go to on all three of his prominent missionary journeys was that Galatian region. And he goes back again, town to town, encouraging them at the start of this third journey. Now, what, do, what does this remind us of? Well, I think it reminds us of something that is a helpful response idea for us, and that is to remember that we are to call to make disciples, not decisions. To make disciples and not decisions. Now, you may say that's splitting hairs a little bit, right? Because the call to discipleship begins with the decision. Follow me, Jesus said, and they they followed him. So in a sense, it certainly includes a decision, but it's not just a one-time thing. It's not like, hey, you know, that jailer in Philippi, he's on the team now. Let's forget about him and go find the next person. But the picture of the church that emerges early on, even from a missionary, was to continue to build in and to develop followers of Jesus, to make disciples. And the reason why that was Paul's strategy was because that was whose strategy? 
That was Jesus' strategy, right? Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission. What does he say? Go into all the world and make decisions. No. It says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey part of what I've commanded you. No. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Friends, those statements and that language is not a catch and release idea. It is a long-term commitment and development. People won't always stay in the same location, but the desire inside of the church should be for people in whatever location that they are, even if they move from place to place or in part of different small groups or Bible studies or ministries, but that all of us are playing a long game with Jesus because he's playing a long game with us that we would understand that there is a process of discipleship and development. It's not just a one-time thing. And that's important for us to remember because sometimes, you know, we have an experience, right? We go to church camp as a kid and we, we walk the aisle and our heart is warmed and we come home and we're fired up and then we go off and we do our own thing for years often after that time. And when that happens, you know, conversations will happen around tables between moms and dads and friends and it'll, it'll there'll be consoling conversations like well at least they trusted in Jesus and, and I would say yes at least they trusted in Jesus that that's not a small thing but it's not the whole thing the reason why that is not a pure salve to our soul is because we desire them to grow and be developed by Christ even as Christ's desire for them is to grow and be developed and Christ's desire for you is that you would grow and be developed one of the things that's so encouraging to me is to meet people. I've, I've got a friend who's in his 80s, and he is growing spiritually in his 80s, right? We don't graduate from the school of discipleship because it's not a decision. It's a process. We see that in Paul's repetition in going to these areas and establishing leaders in those areas to continue to pour into the church there. Well, what's the next thing that we see? The next thing we see is ministry in the city of Ephesus. Now, you might remember last time at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, he stopped by the city of Ephesus. And when he got there, the people of Ephesus heard Paul speak and they said, Paul, you got to come to my house. You got to stay a while. You got to do that thing that you did up in Philippi and in Corinth. Why don't you stay here in Ephesus, make a little home, have a little business, teach a little scripture. Please stay in our city a little longer. And Paul said to them, you might remember this at the end of that second missionary journey. He said, if God wills, I will come back. And he did. On the third missionary journey, after going through Galatia and encouraging the disciples along the way, Paul ends up back in Ephesus. And when he arrives there, he doesn't just have a cup of coffee, but he stays a number of years. Paul spent a long time in Tarsus. He spent quite a while in Antioch. He spent quite a while in um, Corinth, in Ephesus. And next week, he spent some time in prison, what we'll talk about. But he spent maybe his longest tenure after he began his ministry as we know it in the city of Ephesus. And so this is a significant location for us to look at. Now, what happened there? Well, things like this. He said, when some 
became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Paul withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul's strategy, similar to what happened in Corinth, shifted here. When Paul would go to a town, he often went to the synagogue first. But in the two locations we've seen where Paul spent extended time, he gets run out of the synagogue. I mean, they, they just they listen to him for a while, but then they realize he's actually saying things that we're not so sure about. And so he separates from the synagogue and he goes to these different locations. In Ephesus, he went to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, where he began gathering with those who were in the city of Ephesus, and he be- was preaching the gospel to them. And it, he wasn't just doing this, you know, once a week. It says he was doing this daily, pouring out his cup in the, in the glass of all who would receive it. Now, where was Ephesus? Ephesus is on the western coast of what we know of as Turkey. So that's the city of Ephesus. It was a, it was a port city. It was a city of wealth. It was a city um, full of, of idols and idol worship and paganism and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it was a, a fairly prominent city. And Paul will set up shop there. And Paul will say a little later on when he interacts with the Ephesian elders, something we'll see later tonight, that he spent some three years with those folks in this, in this area ministering to them. So he spends this time in Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus teaching the scripture to all who would hear it on a, on a daily basis. Well, what else happened in Ephesus? Well, we might look at a number of the things that happened in Ephesus that are really prominent. One of the things that, that happened in Ephesus was there was this guy named Apollos who steps on the scene. Apollos was someone who had a lot of gifts for speaking and for teaching. But Apollos was somebody who didn't understand a lot of things about Jesus. I mean, remember, he was not from Jerusalem. He had not seen Jesus in the resurrection. So he was hearing about him in waves as this message was making it out to him. And so he had gifts, he had passion, he had excitement, he had a desire to follow Christ, but he didn't have a lot of theology. Well, enter Priscilla and Aquila. You remember them? These were Paul's friends, fellow tent makers that he met in the city of Corinth that traveled with Paul from Corinth back to Ephesus. Paul left them in Ephesus when he went back to Antioch. So Priscilla and Aquila in the city of Ephesus meet Apollos and they begin to disciple him. They begin to fill in the blanks on the things that Paul doesn't know and understand. And Apollos begins to to teach Apollos becomes such a a gifted pastor, teacher, leader that he is sent from the church in Ephesus back to Corinth so that he might help continue to minister to and grow that church in Corinth. But Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila play a significant role based out of the city of Ephesus. Second thing that we see happen in Ephesus happens in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, when the Ephesians have their own Pentecost moment. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know what I mean by that. What I mean is that when the gospel showed up in new areas, new frontiers, the Spirit came in a dramatic way, accompanied with phenomena 
so that people understood that the same spirit that showed up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 also showed up among the Samaritans and also showed up among the Gentiles in Cornelius' house and also showed up even outside of the Middle East on the western shores of the nation of Turkey or Asia um, as the gospel made it to Ephesus. So again, sometimes people will see that experience and want to make it normative for life today and say, see, the Spirit came at a time later than belief in Jesus, and that demonstrates that's the way it would be for everyone. But it only was the way that it was inside of a few occasions in the book of Acts because it was done to demonstrate that the Spirit of God was literally making it to the ends of the earth. What else happened there? Well, I mentioned the school of Tyrannus as Paul shifted his strategy away from the synagogue into uh, really a, a, a church meeting in this hall of Tyrannus. Also in this era in Ephesus, there were a number of miracles that were taking place. Uh, there, there's just a, some phenomena that was surrounding Paul uh, at this time and that he was praying for people and they were being healed. Um, it was so dramatic that people would even take like a handkerchief and want to rub it on Paul and then take it as a good luck charm and to bring healing in other places. I mean, this is something that is beyond the pale of what I've ever seen or understood, right? But around Paul, authenticating his ministry in these frontier areas, God was doing some amazing things. Well, people saw what Paul was doing and they thought, hey, if Paul can do it, maybe we can as well. And so there were imposters who were trying to, in the name of Paul or in the name of Jesus like Paul, just imitating his activity, trying to replicate these miracles. But it didn't work. And so we see this challenge developing in, in Ephesus. But I don't want us to miss the main point when you see the, the conflict that was developing there. I don't want us to miss the fact that there was something dramatic happening in Ephesus. Paul was teaching every day. It says the whole region was hearing the gospel. Miracles were happening in the streets. The city was being turned on its ear. So much so that businesses began needing to close their doors because of the revival that was taking place in the hearts and lives of people. I mentioned earlier that Ephesus was a place that had a number of different temples uh, and a number of different idols that were sold in those temples. Well, there were whole industries that were designed to, to sell the, the Temple of Artemis t-shirt and the Temple of Artemis bath towels and the, the flip-over calendars with the Temple of Artemis and the, and, the, and the little statues that you could buy at the gift shop of the Temple of Artemis so you could take you know, this, this, this goddess home with you. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. There was a whole industry built around that temple and that pagan worship that was happening there. Well, what began to happen was so many people were coming to faith in Christ and walking away from the temple of Artemis that the people that made the little tchotchkes in the temple of Artemis gift shop started going out of business. Their pocketbooks were being impacted. And so because of that, they begin to stir up the city against Paul. Oftentimes, up to this point, it was Jewish opposition 
in the places where Paul went that led to his persecution. But in Ephesus, there was such transformation inside the lives of Gentiles that it ultimately led to persecution of, of Paul. And so this big riot breaks out in that city. And we see that in verses 18 through 41 of chapter 19. Which leads us to our second kind of response idea connected to these verses. And that response is this. Revival, let me try to say that again. Revival reverberates. It was easier to type than it was to say. Revival reverberates. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if Jesus really is grabbing the hearts of people, it will show up in the things that they desire and what they do. Our lives, if we are truly following Christ, will move in a different direction than if our lives are not following Christ. And ultimately, that would show up in things like what is bought and sold, in the things that are popular or unpopular. In the city of Ephesus, an entire industry of idol-making was put in jeopardy because of people responding to the gospel. And, and I just think about what would it be for our day? What would it be for our day? What if people's hearts and lives were truly being captured by Christ? What industries would be threatened? What industries would be threatened? Just think about that for a moment. What if the pornography industry in the world that is a billions of dollars, what if it just shrunk or even disappeared? Not because of laws and regulations, though those could come, but because there was no market for it. People had eyes for their spouse. They didn't go online to find an alternative. Wouldn't it be amazing to see something like that happen? What if abortion clinics went away, not because court cases were overturned, but because the market dried up? People valued human life and were viewing it differently and acting differently as a result. So many of these industries and things. What, what if, what if the, the, the rehab clinic industry went away because there were less people addicted to substances? I mean, that, that would be remarkable. One of the, the sad tragedies that I've heard is that right now you cannot get um, a, a young child into an inpatient treatment facility in our state for things like depression or self-harm. And the reason for that is because they're all full. Wouldn't it be remarkable if just the church was the church and people's lives were transformed in ways that they were transformed so that, that industries began to go away? Now, I know that there's mental illness and there are other things that go on there, but just the sinful effects of our world are such a heavy burden that lay on people that create all kinds of industries to help us cope with the pain and the difficulty of the world. What if our hearts and lives were so flipped and connected to Christ that our responses were just different. True revival reverberates. We ought to be able to see it in life. Something for us to, you know, people talk about revival. We want revival in our city. We want revival in our state. How would we know if it happened? Not just because people would show up and fill rows and seats. But if our, our industries are changed because our appetites have been impacted. Second response we see inside of these verses. 
Well, where does he go next? After spending three years or so in the city of Ephesus, Paul moves on to the region of Macedonia and into Greece. When he goes into that area, we see him interacting with a number of different people. Acts chapter 20, verse 4, he interacts with Sopatar the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. Uh, these are all people that Paul interacts with inside of his journeys back through uh, Macedonia and Greece. Now, when we say Macedonia and Greece, what do we mean? When we say Macedonia, think Philippi. That's where Philippi is, is in Macedonia. And when we say Greece, think Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth. So when it says in chapter 20 that Paul went to those areas, what, what it's indicating is, is he's retracing his steps from his second missionary journey. He helped get the church going in Ephesus, and then he leaves and he goes up to Philippi, and then works his way back down to Corinth and back. It was a relatively short journey, but it's on that journey that he revisits those locations, and he encourages the church along the way. We see him visiting his second missionary journey spots, but the other thing that we see is that the same trouble that he experienced during his first missionary journey or second missionary journey is waiting for him on his return trip. And so his stay is short. Um, God has other plans for Paul. He's gathered this offering from the Corinthians and from the Philippians and others, and he's going to take it back to Jerusalem. So he spends only a short amount of time in Macedonia and Greece before returning. Now, what life response do we see in, in this section, these just few verses of Paul's return trip to Macedonia and Greece? Well, I think we see this, this truth, that individuals matter. That individuals matter. You know, often when we, we think of our New Testament, we think of it in terms of these locations. Thessalonians, Philippians, Corinthians, Ephesians. We loop all of the people in those cities into one homogenous group, as if everybody in Ephesus was the same, as if, as if everyone in Thessalonica is the same. But a little bit of that conditioning comes from our just... Western world today. You know, our, our world wants to define us as a group of someones, right? They want to define us by gender. You know, you're, you're men or you're women, and as if all men or all women are the same. Or our culture wants to define us by our ethnicity. We're, we're black or we're white or we're Asian or whatever it might be. Or our world wants to define us by some other thing, our, our socioeconomic status or whatever. And we begin to overlap these things. And so, you know, I, I become not Mark Robinson, but I become a white, male, middle-income, mid-American, whatever, right? This is what our world does. It wants to reduce us into some product of a system. But what's fascinating to me is when I see this, this section of Paul's missionary journey, and I, I see all of these names of individuals mentioned. I want to go back and just look at them for a second. All of these people. It wasn't just the Bereans. It was Sopater, or however you pronounce his name. Son of Pyrrhus. That doesn't help. I don't know how you pronounce it, but that, that guy, right? He had a name. He had a family. He was an individual. Uh, what, what about 
you know, there wasn't just the Thessalonians. It was Aristarchus and Segundus. It wasn't just the Thessalonians. It was someone specific. It wasn't just the Galatians. It was Gaius and it was Timothy, right? It wasn't just the Asians or the Ephesians. It was Tychius and Trophimus. There's real ministry. And when you understand that and begin to think about that, why is it that all of these names are included inside of our Bible? You know, look at Acts chapter, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 16. You know, those are the parts that we, if you're in a one-year Bible reading plan, you just skim past, right? It's like, here's a bunch of names that I can't pronounce and I don't know. But when we do that, we lose sight of the fact that it wasn't just the Romans, it was people. Paul saw them as individuals. God sees them as individuals. You know, we, we, we all respond to the gospel ourselves, regardless of our background, regardless of our gender, regardless of our ethnicity. We respond to the gospel as individuals. And we see that play out. We, we also do the same thing in terms of ministry. God has gifted each of us differently, right? It, it's, he's, he's done amazing personal work with each of us to involve us in what he's doing and to prepare us for eternity. And so let's resist the urge to just lump people into just one product of a a larger group. And let's instead look at people as individuals. Look at people as individuals. Not as an ethnicity and not as a gender, but as a name, a soul, a person. It's too low-hanging fruit right now to not do that. But friends, let's do it. Far better to, to know individuals than just categories. God has wired us to relate to people in that way. We see Paul relate to his friends in this way, in the midst of this third missionary journey. Individuals matter. Now, what happened after that time Um, in Macedonia and Greece. Well, what happened was Paul decides to take off and to head back home. And by home, I mean the Middle East, Palestine. He decides he's going to go back and he's going to take the offering that he gathered from the the Christians in Philippi and Corinth, and he's going to take that back to bless the people of the Middle East, specifically Christians living in the city of Jerusalem. And so he takes off. But you know, his journey was not like ours. If, if we were going to go from Philippi to Jerusalem, we would try to book a flight, and at best we would be in an airport. But that's not the way you traveled in that day. You had to travel down a path, um, visiting different cities as boats would land to get supplies, or you would travel inland in different ways. And so from Acts chapter 20, verse 7, through chapter 21, verse 16, you see this homeward-bound journey of Paul on his third missionary journey. He went there, as I indicated, to bring the gift. I told you I would show you a verse, one of the many verses in First and Second Corinthians that talk about this gift that Paul was collecting. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 16, 3. He says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, we're going to collect that gift and we're going to take it back to Jerusalem from you, Corinthians. So this is what he's doing on this homeward bound journey. This homeward bound journey begins in Troas. You might remember Troas is where Luke joined the team uh, back in the second missionary journey. 
It's right on the coast, just north of Ephesus, on the western coast of Turkey. And from Troas, he moves all the way back around until he gets to Jerusalem. But what happened on this journey? Well, one of the things that happened on this journey uh, happened in the city of Troas. Paul shows up there and he begins to preach. And um, it's just an interesting experience. I just want to read this uh, for you um, because I, I think it's such a powerful passage. It says in, in chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, now keep in mind, what would the first day of the week be? Sunday, right? When do we gather for worship? On Sunday. When, when do people from a Jewish background gather for worship? Saturday, right? And so we have this shift happening from the synagogue to the school of Tyrannus, from Saturday even to Sunday. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting at the window, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. You know, why am I reading this? It's pretty obvious. I'm a preacher. He talks still longer. You know, there, there's something amazing getting to happen when somebody falls asleep in the middle of his sermon. It says, being overcome by sleep, Eutychus fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and talking him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and had eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Right? It's an understatement. Not a little comforted. If Eutychus was your son, you think you'd be a little comforted at him being restored to life? Um, Paul had some amazing things happen on this journey. But we had the resurrection of Eutychus. After that time in Troas, Paul begins the journey back to Jerusalem. But while he is on that journey, he makes a stop. And he doesn't stop in the city of Ephesus, but he stops outside the city of Ephesus and he sends for the leaders of the Ephesian church to meet him at a special location so that they could have a get-together. Why did Paul not go to the city of Ephesus? Well, because Paul had caused quite a stir the last time he was in the city of Ephesus. If Paul had gone back there, there probably were too many people to see and not enough time because he was not going to stay in Ephesus for weeks or months he only had time for a short powwow, a, a mini retreat. And so he sends for the leaders of that church, once again, because discipleship was on his mind. And he calls them to himself, and he gives them this incredible interaction that we see recorded for us in chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Again, I, I want to just read this for us because it is so powerful to hear the words of Paul shepherding the shepherds of a congregation. And as we think about our world today, their world in Ephesus was challenged. Our world today is challenged. What would God's advice and counsel and encouragement be to us? Well, we get a, a sense of that through Paul's interaction with the Ephesian elders. It says, now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. 
And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I did, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions are what await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood." I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is, able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were sitting with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, friends, in that rather long reading, um, I'm curious, what did you hear? Often in these times I've, I've lectured, um, but I, I really want to know, what, it, what stood out to you from that time? You can just shout some things out that you, that you heard. Yeah, the affection, genuine affection that Paul had for the Ephesian elders and the Ephesian elders had for Paul, expressed in things like the tears they shared together over the thought they wouldn't see each other again, but also the passion and the encouragement that he gives them. It's not distant, it's, it's personal. What else? Warnings, yeah. What what kind of warnings, Jason? Yeah. Yeah. There were warnings, but not just idle warnings. There were warnings because there were things out there that, that were problematic. There were people that were had an agenda to sneak into the church and to corrupt the teaching inside the church. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So, you know, here we're, we're, we're talking for, I'm going to repeat a little bit what you said so that those who are online might, might understand, but he's not talking about the problems that were just happening in the world or even in the outskirts and the suburbs of Ephesus. He was talking about what was happening in the Ephesian church, that there was, there was an effort by some to corrupt the teaching inside the church. And Paul says, do not let that happen. Maintain the true doctrine that has been imparted to you. Um, there's a sense of preserving that truth. Any good innovation in the church should be innovation back to the original. Right? The, it's not as though we need to find a better truth. The, the truth that Jesus gave and established is, is the best. So any innovation we have would be like the Reformation. It brought the church back in line with God's truth. Um, there was a, a danger of that we see here. What else? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, so again, just to, just to repeat what you said, uh, he thought this was the last time he would see them, but it's, it's possible even likely that they did get to see each other again at some point between his Roman imprisonments. Um, and that, that's a, a very good, very good observation. But it's also important to remember, why did Paul think he wouldn't see them again? Paul thought he wouldn't see them again because everywhere he went, People would tell him, and, and his own sense was, when I get to Jerusalem, I don't know that I'm going to make it out of there alive. Uh, my, my whole life in ministry might end in that place because the same people that hated Jesus, they're, they're not going to receive me well. And, and even people inside the church there, there was confusion and, and frustration around Paul and his ministry. And so Paul didn't know how it was going to turn out, um, and so there was this sense of urgency. Good observation. What else? I think it's interesting that Paul says a number of times inside of this, not that he proclaimed some of what God wanted him to say, but all of it. Not what was convenient, but what was necessary. You know, it, it's just a, a great challenge um, for the church to continue to live into. Not to just talk about the three things that are easy, but to be willing to talk about the five that are hard. Because the gospel and the teaching of Christ actually is designed to revolutionize, not just Sunday between 9 and noon, but to transform our entire lives, for us to follow Him everywhere we go. And that kind of following God will transform our lives. And Paul says, I, I don't want you to, to, to stay away from difficult topics, just as Paul says, I did not stay away from those things. I, I taught things that were challenging, like don't buy any more idols. And it almost led to my death and, or imprisonment and a bunch of other stuff. But he said, I said it anyway, because it needed to be said, among other things. So what are the things in our era, in our age, that we need to remember to speak the full counsel of God's truth, not just what's convenient and not just what is easy. We see that referenced here. Well, after that time with those Ephesian elders, Paul makes this last leg of the journey back to Jerusalem. Uh, he lands back in the Middle East and progresses to the city. All along the way, uh, he is reminded by 
prophets and people that it's not going to go well for him when he gets there. And yet Paul keeps going. And I think it's important to think about that even on this week, on Easter week, because on Sunday, uh, we talked about Palm Sunday account. Jesus, well aware of the trouble that awaited him in Jerusalem, went there anyway, went there intentionally, went there on purpose. And that's because there was this sense of destiny. God's will for Jesus was to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins in the city of Jerusalem on the Passover. So Jesus progressed to that point. And Paul here follows really a similar path from a different direction, but a similar path. Everybody is telling Paul, Paul, when you go there, they're going to bind you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to beat you. They may even kill you. And Paul says, I get it, but that's where I'm supposed to go. We don't know exactly how all of that was put together, but there was a sense of destiny and direction to move into the presence of trouble, big trouble, by Paul in this time and in this season. And we see that in the first parts of chapter 21. Now, what response will we have in this section? The first response is to not preach past midnight, lest anyone fall out of windows from third floors. Um, No, that has nothing to do with our response. Um, That may be my response, but that's not yours. Don't don't preach past midnight, the next youth lock in, I get it. But anyway, what else do we see here? Well, it's important for us to see that the church is more than just a hospital or a rec center, but it's a battleship. One of the ideas about the church is that it's a place where broken people can be cared for, like a hospital. That's true. That's true, right? The church and the compassion of Christ and the hope that is found in him ministers to our souls better than any medicine ever could, right? So there, there is a sense where the church is a hospital, but it's not just a hospital. There's also a sense in our world today that the church is a rec center. It's a place where we go and they play the music we like and we do things that we like and we have friends and we have activities and there's fellowship and there's fun. And you know what? There is those things, right? There is an aspect of that that's true. A church that has no warmth, that has, doesn't spend time together, that doesn't enjoy each other's company is, is not so much of a church either, right? But, but it's more than that. It's not just getting together and having some fun. But also the church is a battleship. It's been outfitted with artillery for purpose that we might be able to fight the good fight of this age and in any age to continue to proclaim the glory of Jesus in every generation. You know, when I I think about this idea, it's like, how do you make sense of the last 12 months? The last 12 months that we have been through Oftentimes, we think of it in terms of what we have lost in terms of recreation or maybe some care that we need to have for our own souls and lives, and that's true. But also, friends, have you ever thought that the God who is sovereign over all things and all places and all times saw fit for us to live through that moment and to be alive in this moment in order to be involved in his work in this time and in this season? Friends, we have the privilege right now in this age, in this era, to be the church, to be representatives of Jesus Christ, to stand up in this city and say, Jesus is amazing, and he is the solution to every problem that you have, and he is the only one who is truly worthy of all of our adoration and praise. 
that task was not entrusted to Paul in this place. Paul went to Berea and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, he went to all of those places. But in the sovereignty of God, he saw fit that we would be in this place, in this time, for this reason. There's a mission that is about the church. And just as it was Paul's task to take it in his day, it's our task to take it in ours. To proclaim the gospel to those around us and to invite others to follow him. But another response that I think is important for us to see in light of this return to Jerusalem, is the patience of God in pursuit of his people. The patience of God in pursuit of his people. Now, what do I mean by that? This is not really self-evident in what we have said so far, but I want us to think for a moment. If you were at Wildwood last Sunday, we looked at Luke chapter 19 and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. As Jesus crests the hill and as Jesus sees the city, The crowd is celebrating, but what is Jesus doing? He's weeping. He's wailing. Why? The Scripture tells us why. He was weeping because he saw the city of Jerusalem and what lie in front of it. The judgment and wrath of God coming upon that city because of their rejection of Jesus, because they did not receive their Messiah at the time of their visitation. And because of that, the wrath of God would come on that city. And and Luke 19 tells us that Jesus understood that the city of Jerusalem would be surrounded by an army that would wreak untold travesty and harm upon those people. History would tell us that that event happened in 70 A.D., some 40 years after Jesus entered on Palm Sunday. The Romans surrounded the city. 600,000 Jews died in the city of Jerusalem, others carted off to slavery. Jesus saw that moment and he wept. But here's what's fascinating to me. Though Jesus saw that moment, the wrath of God did not come the day or two after the resurrection. It could have. Their rejection of Jesus had already happened. Right? Jesus could have rose from the dead. He could have gathered his disciples and said, let's go up north to the lake and we'll, we'll hide out in Galilee while the wrath of God destroys the city that killed me. Didn't happen that way. Instead, 40 years go by. Now, why the delay? Why the delay? Well, the reason for the delay seems obvious, right? The church was commissioned to preach the gospel and to preach the gospel where first? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Another chance. Preach this message clearly. And they did. And 5,000 people responded on the day of Pentecost. Then they continued to, to minister in that area so that the church was growing and was being built. It's, it's a wonderful thing to, to see happen But it wasn't just in that one day, but over 40 years, which is basically a lifetime. It's a generation. They were given an opportunity with a faithful testimony of God to repent. Eventually the clock ran out, but it didn't run out immediately. It's a reminder to us of the heart and the compassion of God that does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he delays the wrath to give people a chance to respond. 
We see it again in the book of Revelation, right? The book of Revelation, we see seven years of protracted judgment of God upon the earth. Why seven years? Why seven years? Why in these waves? Why bowls and trumpets and all those things? Why not just in an instant? Why not just in a weekend? Why not just in one graphic thing? It's not because God is, is, is not capable of doing such things. The judgment of God in the book of Revelation happens over seven years to give people a chance to repent. You know, we've often wondered if, if people could only see God work in this dramatic kind of a way, see people raised from the dead, see the judgment of God coming upon the earth, then they would repent. That experiment would be put to test in the seven years prior to the return of Christ when all kinds of phenomena will be poured out upon the earth. And yet what Revelation tells us is sadly people still don't get it. But we see the patience of God in his pursuit of his people. And the way that God gets the message there is through us. It's through us. Last thing we see in this section is what happens in the city of Jerusalem. We see this in just a few verses. What happened in that area? Paul shows up in the city. He goes and he meets with James and the church leaders there. And it says, after greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And then James begins to tell, and, and Paul, let me tell you what's happening back here. And he begins to unfold and tell the, the wonderful things that had happened in the city of Jerusalem and in the ministry in that area. And it was just this beautiful moment of reunion as places around the world. You know, I've, I've got friends who are missionaries all over the world. And one of the things I love to do is when they're in town, or, or I, I've been able to see some of them even in the field, to sit down and say, tell me what God is doing in this area and celebrate what the Lord is up to there and here. It's something that still happens even today. Even among our families, when you get together, don't just say, hey, how was your weekend? Well, what, what's, what's God up to? What's he up to? What's he been doing in your family, in your life? And you can share these stories back and forth with each other. Back here in Jerusalem, we see the updates to the ministry. And then we see James remind Paul that a, a threat has been made on his life. And so they construct a plan to hopefully clarify Paul's orthodoxy and avoid his death in the city. And all of that is the lead-in to what we're going to see next week as we wrap up the book of Acts. That leads us to our final response for tonight, and that is to, to share and to celebrate what God has done and is doing. Again, God is at work. He's at work in our lives. He's at work in our churches. He's at work in one geographic location and another. May we have that kind of thinking permeate our conversations. This is what the Lord is doing that I've seen. What's he doing in your life and in your family? What are the things that he's teaching you? How is he sustaining you in this moment? All too often we view our faith as something that merely is a remembrance of something that happened 2,000 years ago. It certainly began there, but Jesus is still at work in our lives today. And just as Paul relayed with James the things that were going on in their lives and they were able to celebrate and worship. May we also be quick to share and to celebrate what God is doing today in our lives and in each other's lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for just these great truths. Uh, thank you for 
this third missionary journey of Paul, for how you preserved it for us so that we might be able to look back on it today and be encouraged by it. Father, may there be at least one or two things uh, from this section that we remember and go investigate further um, so that we might understand more and more and more of who you are and trust you with all of our lives. May we not be people who shrink away from the full counsel of your word, but may we dive deep into it and stand firm on it in this day and in this era. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, next week we will be wrapping up our study of the book of Acts in chapters 21 through 28 as we're going to see testimonies that Paul gives in these trials that he has. Um, And there's a little special thing you need to know for next week. And that special thing is that this Wednesday night party cannot be contained inside of this one room. Um, But we are actually going to move our class next week over into the uh, children's building, to the upstairs theater in our children's building. In this room, we're going to be having our WANA Awards ceremony. And so this room won't be available for us at 6 o'clock next week. But if you go out here in our gathering hall, if you just walk all the way through the gathering hall and up the ramp, the first doors in front of you are an entrance to our upstairs children's theater. That's where we'll be next week. Uh, We'll also be having the stream available next week as well from that location, but we'll be able to wrap up our study next Wednesday night of Acts um, as we we go through that. And again, just a reminder um, that we have uh, Good Friday services Friday night and then Easter Sunday services on uh, Easter Sunday morning. Hopefully you can be with us Friday and Sunday, Um, but thanks for joining us tonight. We look forward to seeing you this weekend.